news from the zones, Tumbleweeds. My chemical romance are still broken up. And we are still not okay. Trust me. I'm Trevor Ickrath. And I'm Ben Pitt. And Ben, you and I are two writers living in Los Angeles. By day, we kind of grapple with complicated financial concepts that are far beyond the realm of either of our comprehensions. Correct. But by night, we are both big My Chemical Romance nerds. That's true. And sometimes the way we grapple with that is by talking about My Chemical Romance incessantly. Which is exactly what we're here to do today. So let's get started. Let's talk about the boys. Um, all right. So why don't we do that whole like first episode of a podcast thing and talk about our history with the band a little bit? I thought that would be a good place to start. Uh, do you want Do you want to go first and just say how you were kind of introduced to the band or where you first heard them? What your early days as an MCR fan were like? Yeah, sure. So I was one of those kids who hopped in around the Black Parade era. Um, that was like oh six, oh seven. I'm a little bit younger than you. That puts me in middle school. Mm -hmm. So just like 13, 14-year-old Ben had never heard anything quite like Welcome to the Black Parade. And I started looking up everything I could about the band and found out they had these three other albums. And really just that was the first band I learned all the members' names of. I just really, for a while, there was a period of time where if someone asked me, name your favorite band other than My Chemical Romance, I really would have had to think hard about it because they were just daily listen for me for probably the better part of four or five years was just just them um i kind of jumped from black parade back to the beginning and then worked my way forward so i think actually even though welcome to the black parade was the first song i heard i think that was the last of their albums i bought i really kind of went chronologically when i bought their records so super stoked to start at the beginning here i have a pretty similar story i got into them like also when i was like 14 I think it was the summer between my eighth grade of school and my freshman year of high school uh, when, like, um, I think, like, Three Cheers had just come out, and I was seeing, like, the videos for I'm Not Okay and Helena on, like, MTV2 Infused all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm Not Okay has that big kind of, like, prep school theme to it. Yeah, definitely. And that really resonated with me as somebody who was about to start high school. Yeah, I, I can definitely understand that. I went to a preppy middle school with a uniform. So when I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, I know this isn't me, but it's also me. I stayed with them throughout like a uh, black parade. I was really into that when that came out after that, I like feel like it kind of became like cool not to like emo. And I kind of fell into that a bit. So I was like, my chemical romance, I'm over them. Sure. But eventually, you know, when I kind of circled back around to being like post irony and shit, I got back into My Chemical Romance, and I'm, I'm a fan still today. Yeah, I, I never really kind of thought it was uncool to like them. They stopped being daily listens for me. I started listening to a bunch of other stuff. In that long lull between Black Parade and Danger Days, I was like, well, maybe that was just a, a previous chapter of my life that I'll look back on someday. And once that first song came out, or they did that, it was just the Look Alive Sunshine part for the Na Na music video. I was right back in immediately as soon as I heard. That really hooked you. Yeah, just and to this day, this that's my favorite My Chem album too because it really just roped me back in. That's a good one, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it down the line. But first, we've got to talk about this debut record of theirs. I brought you my bullets, you brought me your love. Yeah, I've got a lot to talk about. I'm not 100% sure where you want to start. I think we start at the beginning. I, I think before we even get into the album, since this is the first episode of what will hopefully be a long, extensive podcast about the band. We should start with the group themselves and talk about yeah. where they came from. And something I think that's going to be really helpful in this discussion, I know we both watched uh, the unauthorized documentary of My Chemical Romance. Yeah, things that make you go, hmm? Yeah. 
Maybe maybe I missed it. Do they at any point in the documentary ever say why it's called that? Uh, no, I've seen it twice. I owned the DVD at one point. I have no clue why it's called that. The only reason I can think of is because like since it's unauthorized, maybe they were like, what can we call this? Like where the band will never find it. Like, what would you not think to call a My Chemical Romance documentary? Yeah, maybe it's something like that. I don't know. I also, I remember when I first got it, I couldn't tell if it was meant to be mmm or mmm. Right. Like, like, you think the band is delicious or something. Yeah. It's such a weird watch, though, because it's got that, like, female British narrator who can't really say Gerard's name correctly. Yeah. Gerard. Gerard. And she keeps, like, incorrectly saying the name of the album, too. Yeah. Yeah, But it really did have a lot of, like, it offered a lot of great insight and had some pretty personal interviews with a lot of people who were close to the band in their early days. I found it interesting because I didn't actually look when the documentary was made, but near the end they start talking about how Black Parade is about to come out. Like, they don't even know the name of it yet. So it's interesting to hear people talk about post-Three Cheers, My Chem, you know, while there's buzz about them going back into the studio reflecting on their first album and how they got back together. That was such an interesting time to capture. I thought that was particularly interesting, too, because that was when I first got into the band. For sure. I definitely understand that. So let's talk about their origins, uh, starting, I guess, with Gerard. Right. Now, Gerard Arthur Way was born on April 9th, 1977, which makes him an Aries, I made sure to know. And he grew up in Belleville, which is a little suburb in New Jersey with not a lot of character, but he had more than enough character to make up for that. He was a super nerdy, emotional teenager who loved comic books and horror movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his grandmother played a large part in kind of shaping him as an artist. His maternal grandmother, Elena Lee Rush... She was the one who really encouraged all of his talents, and she even bought him his first guitar when he was a kid. I didn't actually know that. I know he played Peter Pan in his fourth grade production. Which which I feel like is perfect casting. Like, I would go see a production of Peter Pan with Gerard Way starring as Peter now. Yeah, so would I. I feel like that would still work. What's really interesting, though, and I've heard him talk about this in interviews before, is that part's usually reserved for a girl. So he was, like, really excited to have the, like, titular role but then also didn't know if he should be insulted that he got a girl's part, which is really fascinating, I think, says a lot about who Gerard is as a person. He really does have that, like, pixie kind of vibe, though, that makes him such a natural fit for that role. Like, he's a real... He strikes me as a real Peter Pan figure in, like, everything he does. Yeah, I can totally see that. He just wants to, like not grow up and talk about comic books and make punk music. Yeah, so he starts singing publicly. He starts to learn how to play guitar after his grandmother buys him one. He plays in a couple bands, some with his brother Mikey. Mm-hmm. I can't re- do you, did you Do you remember what that first band that they... Oh, no, I can't remember. Raygun Jones or something? That sounds right. But he didn't really find a lot of success in music. So as he kind of grew into becoming a teenager, he decided to become a comic book illustrator. And he went to attend the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Right. Let's let's just jump back a little bit because I think there are some defining moments in Gerard's life that we should talk about. When are you gonna Are you gonna talk about when he got held up at gunpoint? I am. Great. He talked about this in a Rolling Stone interview in 2008. He, his quote is: "I got held up with a." Th- 347 Magnum, had a gun pointed to my head, and put on the floor execution style. Pretty wild. And he went on to say, no matter how ugly the world gets or how stupid it shows me it is, I always have faith in it. Which is really interesting. I think that that sort of dark, terrible thing and having something kind of hopeful come out of it, hopeful but also still dark, really defines the band itself. I think it's, it's almost a mini version of what really brought the band together in the first place. Totally. There are kind of like a few inciting incidents for My Comical Romance and the band that they would become. And I think 
Gerard Way being like held to the floor at gunpoint definitely played a part in that. Definitely. And did you see that yeah. at age 16, he was on an episode of a tabloid talk show called Sally, Jesse, Raphael? No, I missed this. Tell me about it. He went on to discuss the controversy surrounding the publicizing of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer's crimes in comic books. Huh. I didn't go any further into detail about that, but I thought that was a fascinating thing that this is a year after he was held at gunpoint. He's going on a tabloid talk show to talk about comic books and like serial killers in comic books. And that just feels very also Gerard, you know, and definitely something that was probably pretty pivotal to him and how he became an artist later yeah i mean serial killers comic books that ticks a lot of different gerard boxes for me yeah definitely so he goes to uh he goes to the school of visual arts in new york city where he learns to be a comic book illustrator soon after uh graduating he struggles for a long time to get into comics there's this one story that i really enjoyed from that documentary yeah i have a note about this too a very good friend of the band and actually the head of the record label they would first end up signing to eyeball uh, he tells this story in that documentary about how Gerard once locked himself in his house for like two months, just drawing pictures of Spider-Man over and over again. And he later explains it was to practice for this job he was trying to get with Marvel. But that's just such a funnier story without that setup. Definitely. Also, that guy's name is Alex Saavedra. He's the founder of Eyeball Records. Just We'll talk about him quite a bit. I got a lot to say about Alex. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. so do I. So do I. What I really liked about that story, though, is that apparently he he was offered a position at Marvel, potentially. Yeah, he, he got the Spider-Man job. He got the job drawing pictures of Spider-Man. And then couldn't do it because the, the pressure got to him. And I think there might be a world in which we didn't get My Chemical Romance because the pressure got to him of making this album, this, this album we're about to talk about. Right, because this was not an easy album to record for Gerard. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into that, yeah. So Gerard's not in a super great place. He bails on the Spider-Man job because of the pressure, which kind of prompts his friends to stage an intervention for him. And they actually managed to help him get out of the funk he's been in. And he lands an internship with Cartoon Network. And it is while commuting to this internship one day that he looks up from the ferry he's taken from New Jersey into New York City. And what does he see? an airplane crashing through the World Trade Center. I can't imagine what that would have been like. Gerardway was front and center for 9-11. I mean, it's insane for me to think about now, and I've heard this story a million times, and just seeing in the documentary, reading about it on Wikipedia or anywhere else online, it's just so insane to me. I don't think I would become an emo icon. I think I would just, like, crash and burn. It's definitely an interesting reaction to have to it, isn't it? Yeah. Like, looking up at at the tower coming down and going, man really got to start a band yeah it really interesting he his quote about it was i literally said to myself fuck art i've got to get out of the basement i've got to see the world i've got to make a difference and that's kind of what he does soon after he decides to to start a band he calls up his old high school friend a drummer he knows matt pillisier also known as otter otter who is <laughs> described in that documentary as a good kid with a tattoo of a bat on his hand who loved pizza and seemed like he wanted to eat pizza all the time. (laughs) Which is like, if that's the best thing you can say about him, I love that none of that is drummer. None of that was great drummer, which by all accounts, he was not. They they say some stuff about his drumming skills, but not not much of it is positive. Yeah. So they start jamming together in uh, Otter's attic. Right. But Gerard can't play guitar and sing at the same time. So he calls, quote, the best guitarist he knew... Ray Toro to come in and play guitar 
so Gerard can focus on honing his vocal stuff. I remember reading at one point, Ray was actually in a different band because he wanted to learn how to play drums, but they went to him and were like, no, 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 forget this drum shit. You got to go back to playing guitar. You're the best guitarist we know. Come join our band, our 9-11 band. And he was like, okay, yeah, I'll play guitar. Ray's the one with the hair, right? Yeah, curly hair. Okay, got it, got it. He's always flopping it around in their videos. Yeah, definitely. So they're jamming out in Otter's Attic. And uh, at this point, Gerard's little brother, Mikey, who's like three years younger than him, I think, Mm -hmm. is so impressed by Gerard's dedication to, like, do something with his life and start a band that he drops out of college Mm -hmm. to join them as their bassist. And he did not know how to play bass. I'm not totally sure about that. I've read like conflicting things. There's like some stories, uh, Gerard told in interviews about how like Mikey would play bass in those unsuccessful bands that he was in as a teenager. Yeah. But then in that documentary, there's a lot of talk about how Mikey had never played bass before and they all taught him how to play bass. Yeah, and let's talk about that a little bit, because we're going to touch on Alex Saavedra, who's a friend of theirs, who happens to run a record label. And he was originally going to be their bassist. Now, that this is where I want to talk about it. Okay. Because I wonder, Saavedra seems to kind of blow up the truth a little bit, in my opinion, just, just based on the way he tells stories. He's an interesting character to watch in that documentary. Yeah. You get the, you get the vibe that he might not be the most reliable narrator. Definitely. And I wonder if secretly it was like, he's like, oh, you guys are killing it. Can I play bass for you? And they're like, oh, we're going to get my brother Mikey to play bass. And he's like, this kid, does he even know how to play bass? And they're like, ah, he's learning on the job. Like kind of just like. That would not surprise me in the slightest. And then he's like, yeah, you're right. I I don't have time for it anyway. Yeah, I've got my own band. Yeah, exactly. I I got too much record label shit. And it's Mikey who actually uh, gives the band their name. He's working at a. Uh, Borders or Barnes & Noble at the time. I can't remember. I think it's a Barnes & Noble. Yes, he's working in a Barnes & Noble. I always get it mixed up because Fall Out Boy met in a Borders. Okay. He's working in a Barnes & Noble, and he sees this book uh, by Irvine Welsh named Ecstasy, Three Tales of Chemical Romance. And he's like, hey, why don't you guys call your band that? And they're like, all right. Hence, My Chemical Romance is Bored. When I told my dad I was starting a My Chemical Romance podcast, he's like, are you going to spend the first episode exploring how that's the worst name for a band of all time? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the thing with their name is that they love to talk about how they're not an emo band. Yeah. And how they just got stuck with that label because it was popular at the time. Right. But if, if you're a rock band in like 2002 and you name yourself My Chemical Romance, you know what you're doing. Definitely. Like, I like, fully on, agree. Guys. I mean, to be fair, though, that that's also kind of just what post-hardcore bands are called. I mean, they went on tour with a band called Every Time I Die around the same time. That That is true. It's a fine line between emo band and post-hardcore band, and the literary reference usually edges you into post-hardcore. Sure. I think that's fair. So the band is pretty much fully assembled at this point, except for one guy who's going to join in just a little bit. And they signed to that guy we've been mentioning, Alex Saavedra. They signed to his indie punk hardcore label, Eyeball Records. Right. And Alex, as much as a sketchy character as he almost kind of seems to be, he was really helpful in the band's early days. Uh, He really did a lot of promotion for them. And it was actually him who kind of went out there and paid for their first recording sessions. Right. He calls up this guy, the sound engineer he knows, John Neclario who runs a little recording studio out of his mother's basement, which he calls Nada Studios, and he books the band their first recording session on May 15th, 2002, which I think is a good time to start talking about the album that they recorded. All right, sounds good. So Ben, when was the first time you heard this album? Um, I was in, 
I think seventh or eighth grade, I bought it ironically at a Borders, not a Barnes and Noble, but a Borders. Great, like that. I'd been listening to all their music online, but at this point, I wasn't allowed to have albums with parental advisories on them. Of course. Bullets does not have a parental advisory on it, even though it should. It's probably their most explicit record. I would agree. I think so. I mean, Sorrows alone is like their most explicit song. Yeah. I mean, Gerard's never shy of dropping some F-bombs, but here he really lets loose. Yeah, definitely. I think they rein him in after this. Mm -hmm. But I had a portable CD player that I would just sit in my room and listen to this album over and over and over again. So, yeah, somewhere between, like, maybe somewhere between 7th and 8th grade. That sounds right. What about you? I probably didn't end up checking this one out until, like, after the Black Parade came out. Like, I got Three Cheers shortly after that was released, and I loved it. I got into Black Parade, and then I kind of wanted more, so I went back and started checking out, like, some of their older stuff. Yeah. I think the one song I heard was, like, Head First for Halos, because that was on that live album they put out in between Three Cheers and Black Parade, Life on the Murder Scene. That was my first exposure to, like, this era of My Chemical Romance. But I didn't really start diving into the older stuff until, like, after I had lived with the band for quite some time. Sure. And I feel like that's probably not an uncommon experience for this record. Definitely not. Although, I, even looking back on it, I think it's weird that I bought this album. They were already a band I listened to a lot, a band I liked, but I really only liked their singles from Three Cheers and Black Parade. I'm not even sure if I knew any of the songs on this record when I bought it. And that maybe that's what fascinated me so much about it and what, what really made it stick with me at the time was just that it was like this raw, dirty, heavier version of this band I liked, and it was the thing that came out first. It also made me feel kind of cool, like, oh, I listen to Bullets. You guys listen to their newer stuff? Whatever. I have Bullets on CD. <laughs> yeah, you, were a, you were a real hipster back in middle school. <laughs> but this one does sound pretty different from the rest of their stuff that would come later. It's, a, like you said, a lot more raw, a lot kind of dirtier, a little less refined, and Like a lot of it, I I like like pretty much everything on this album, I'll say right now. Yeah, me too. But a lot of it feels a little not fully formed. Uh huh. Some of this feels like it could come from like a lot of other post hardcore emo bands around the time. Like some of these songs could be by like Thursday or at the drive in or the used or AFI. Yeah. And the the best ones do have like what I've been considering like the My Chemical Romance factor, where you see the seeds getting planted that would eventually turn them into the band that they would become. I think some of these songs could have gotten left out if they wanted this to be an EP instead of an LP. Like, if they were like, this is going to be our short-form thing, and we're going to go on tour with more songs than this, then there's a couple of these songs, and I'm going to talk about them as we go through the track by track. But I think there are definitely a few that could have gotten on the chopping block and then just had an EP instead of a full-length album. Cool. I'm looking forward to hearing what you would cut, because I going through this, I'm, I'm a big proponent of like trimming the fat, but here there was only one real song that I would kick off if I had to. I have two. I feel like I know which ones they're going to be, but I, I guess we'll see. Do you want to get into the track-by-track? Track? Now seems like a good time. Before that, I want to ask you, how do you feel about the name of the album, and how do you feel about the album cover? Okay. Um, the name of the album feels very My Chemical Romance. Agreed. This is one area where they come out of the gate really fully formed. Like, I brought you my bullets, you brought me your love. That feels like something Gerard would maybe have kicking around in his head as, like, maybe something for, like, a comic or something you wanted to work on. Yeah. 
it feels like something he might have scribbled on the front of like a composition notebook. And he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this yet. What's going in those pages, but something is because I got the name. The cover has never really done much for me. Me either. I'm like, what am I looking at? I don't get it. It took me forever to even realize what it is. And I still feel like I only have half an idea. Yeah, me too. It looks like somebody in a body bag hanging from a hook. I think it's Houdini. Okay. Like escaping from a straitjacket? Yeah. Interesting. But then what is like, what are we seeing it through? I have no idea, honestly. And it's my least favorite part about this album. And it might be my least favorite part about pretty much any My Chemical Romance album. I will say it fits the sound. Like this, it's a good depiction of what you're going to hear, I think. Yeah, sort of abstract, sort of dirty, dark. Yeah, gritty and like... The hopeful oranges in there. Yeah, I see what you mean. All right, let's start going track by track, uh, beginning with this instrumental introduction, Romance. Romance. How do you feel about this? I think it's. I think it's a nice little kind of bit of table setting going on. I. I don't think it needs to. Like it loops in the middle, right? Yeah. There's a dip. I would be fine with it just happening once if this was just a thirty second opener. Yeah, I would be too. I have kind of a weird thing with this because I always skipped it growing up. Yeah. I would just always get straight into the next song. Now, get especially in preparing for this episode, I never skip it, and I actually kind of really like the dip. I, I I look forward to it. I kind of like move my body with the dip. I, I'm into it. Interesting, cool. But the album really kicks off with the second track, "Honey, This Mirror Isn't Big Enough for the Two of Us." Another track, great, perfectly named for this record. It's just it's a mouthful the name of the album's a mouthful the name of the band is a mouthful like this is a top three on the record for me they were really riding that wave of like long emo songs weren't they between this and like stuff like on the next one like you know what they do to guys like us in prison yeah definitely this one's cool though it's like a total banger but this is one of those ones that i think lacks that mcr factor like where this could have been like by a handful of like eyeball bands or some other post-hardcore band but I really do like what's going on here. The band is already really tight in terms of like performance and songwriting. And I really love that. Like, it's cool that Gerard starts the record already unhinged. Definitely. Like he doesn't take any time to build up. He just comes straight out of the gate. Like what's up? I'm drunk. I'm on pills. And if you think you're fucking my friends, you've got another thing coming. Yeah. His performance is like my favorite thing on this song. I I totally agree. I I think, I don't know that I fully agree that it would, it could show up on any other record. Uh, it seems kind of like quintessential bullets to me. Okay. More than any other song on this, it feels like we're dirty. We're not sure what genre we're really going for, but we're here to have a good time in a dark way. We're, we're just... Gerard mm-hmm. once described the band as dangerous pop, and I think this song is dangerous pop. That's a lot of fun. Dangerous pop is a good way to think about that. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the music video. Did you have a chance to watch it? I did. This was an interesting one. It seems oddly pertinent to our times. Like, (laughs) Please explain that to me, because I, like, had no idea what to make of this one. Okay, for those who who aren't familiar with the Mirror music video, it's the band hanging out in, like, a room playing the song. It's the only music video we have of them just in regular clothes, which I think is fascinating. Interesting. I didn't realize that, but you're right. Because they're not in costume. It's, like, pre-costume. Yeah. And then there's this subplot about like a casting director trying to use his power to sleep with women. Okay, I kind of got that. He sleeps with this one woman and is kind of like manipulating her into like, he's like, I got you this job, you have to keep sleeping with me. 
It's imagine like if Harvey Weinstein got what happened to that guy and the girl with the dragon tattoo. That's that's immediately what I thought of as well. Yeah. Yeah. She she knocks him out and she pulls out all these needles and she does some kind of like acupuncture esque torture to him. I think that's what's going on. She like stabs him in the eye and she stabs him in the stomach, which is really interesting because Gerard is is famously terrified of needles. Mm. Makes sense. So I think that this uh, needle torture that goes on feels like something that Gerard is like, no, 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 I promise this is going to be terrifying. And it kind of is. I also like that there's the never again thing at the end, which kind of really beats Taylor Swift to the punch like a couple years earlier. Totally. Okay. <laughs> I thought about that recently, my like my last playthrough of the album. And I was like, oh, he, he does the like Taylor Swift never again thing at the end, which is fun. I like that. I wouldn't have thought to make that comparison, but here we are. Yeah. The video really made me want to dye my hair black again. Ah, uh, right? This is a good look for Gerard this era. He he wore, like, the uh, the bulletproof vest a lot when performing, I think, which is very cool. Yeah. I love seeing those all the images of those early performances on that documentary where he's either wearing a bulletproof vest or he's wearing, like, an all-black suit that looks like it might be his dad's suit. Like, it just doesn't really fit him well. Yeah. And everyone else in the band is wearing just normal clothes. He does that thing with, like, the eyeshadow, too, where he kind of makes himself, like, a domino mask. Yeah, which I like. Very comic book-inspired, I think. Yeah, for sure. This one's really cool, though, and it's it's a good song to hit right out the gate with. I, I totally agree. This next one, though, I like even better, Vampires Will Never Hurt You. I see Vampires and Mirror as, like, one really long song. Like, you know in American Idiot, where some of the songs are stitched together for no reason? Yeah. On the album? Mm -hmm. It's just they kind of go together. It's a really strong one-two punch, for sure. Yeah. I I feel like if I could, like, edit this album, I would just stitch these two together and be like, no, you have to listen to these two back-to-back, because that's just how they're supposed to go. I I think there's a pretty close relationship for me between those two songs, too, because this is this takes everything good about Honey, This Mirror, and it adds in that MCR factor where we start to see the kind of band that they would turn into. Like, here's where we first start to see, like, Gerard's, like, obsession with the occult and vampires and that kind of stuff. I remember hearing reading once that after they got this the like recorded version, they used to play it for their friends. It'd be like, this is a song we recorded together. And then at the end, the band would all high-five each other, like, yeah, that was great. Great. I love that. This was also the first song they recorded. Right. And there's quite a story behind it. This was the first thing they recorded at Nada Studios, that dude's mom's basement. Mm -hmm. The session was co-produced by their friend Alex, who ran uh, Eyeball Records and signed them. And the singer from another Eyeball post-hardcore band, Thursday, that My Chemical Romance had played a couple shows with, and Gerard had actually designed a T-shirt for. Okay. So they go into the they they go into the studio and they're laying the track down. And Gerard is like absolutely psyching himself out. He's overwhelmed by the recording process and he just can't really figure his vocals out. And eventually, Alex like gets fed up with it and he walks up to Gerard and he says, "I'm sorry for what I'm about to do to you." And he punches him in the face as hard as he can. And he says, "You've really got to focus, dude, because you can pull this off." And then they start singing, and I have a, I have some quotes about what happens as soon as they start singing. Do you have these quotes? Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, both John and Alex told this story. Why don't you say what happened? It, it bounces back and forth between John and Alex. It's really it's really quite dramatic, the way they, they cut it. I love it. And the way they, they splice it, it's so good. We start doing the song. All of a sudden, the sky just turned bright purple. It started pouring outside, like pouring, thunder, lightning, craziness. The sun was just gone. 
rain was just pouring down and we were like, this is the greatest day of our lives. This is going to be the greatest thing ever. He hit that song one take all the way through. Really good story. This is also the song they were recording it. Frankie Arrow, the final Mm -hmm. member of the band, is just in the studio too for his band, Pensy Prep. And he's like, oh, fuck this band. I'm going to be their rhythm guitarist. Yeah, My Chemical Romance takes quite a shine to this Frankie Arrow guy, hires him as their final official member on the spot, and the band is complete, at least this stage of it, because they would go through a couple subsequent lineups, but mostly with one specific member. I also have an indie film based on the narrative I see in this album, which, as you know, is a running thing with me. I just apparently create indie films while listening to albums. You're a writer. Exactly, and it starts with this song. I see these like young couple in the like summer 2001, pre-9-11, and they're like in kind of a bad relationship. It's not great. The guy's kind of an asshole. They get in a fight, and then he gets attacked by vampires. And he gets turned, and the, the like turning process is really slow and drawn out. And he just realizes, like, I don't want to die. I don't want to become a vampire. I'm not going to hurt you. Please just take me back. Run away with me. We're, we're going to be okay. Like, let's just run forward. And that's what Vampires is. That's kind of honey, this mirror, and Vampires stitched together. I like it. I like it. And there is, like, there's kind of an actual narrative running through this album that we'll talk about, I think, in, like, one or two more songs. But that, that's very interesting, and I'm always down for that kind of interpretation. Yeah. You want to talk about the music video? This one was cool. I liked this. I like it, too. It's really weird. First time we see him in costume, it's kind of Yeah, a, they're all wearing black and white suits. Yeah, it's kind of a proto version of their Three Cheers album, or Three Cheers outfits, just without the red ties. Yep. Um, there's some weird parts where it, like, cuts to black, and they come back, and Gerard is every member of the band. I didn't notice that. Yeah, there's one part where, it, like, it, I don't know if it's every member of the band, but Gerard's singing, and then he's also the guitarist, but he's not playing the guitar. He's just smoking a cigarette, but they're both Gerard. Huh. Interesting. Um, I gotta go back and watch it. Something I did notice is that Ray's hair is short here. Yeah, which I kind of like. It's super claustrophobic, though, too, right? Yeah, they're all really crowded into whatever space they're performing in. It made me feel like they just wanted to break out of my laptop screen. I like that. I also really like Mikey's bass on display here with the silver glitter. I don't know how that came about, but I know that right now, if you look up Mikey's custom Mikey Way Fender bass, it has silver glitter, just like in his very first music video. Or I don't know if it's his first, I guess, this. I don't know when it was recorded in relation to Mirror, but... Just like back, way back in the day, he's got that silver glitter still, which I like. It's his calling card. Yeah. Silver glitter Mikey Way bass. I love that Mikey Way was kind of the unsung hero of this recording session, too. Yeah, because like uh, there, there's a little bit in the documentary where they're talking about how horrible the drummer was at recording his parts. Like, right. Otter couldn't keep time for nothing they said. Like He just kept slowing the tracks down or speeding them up by like 30 or 40 BPM. Yeah. But Mikey, on the other hand, who'd like barely ever played bass before just nailed all of his parts in like one, two or three takes, which I love. And I love that his brother's basically dying from like a tooth infection that is like giving him severe headaches. Yeah. Gerard way has these weird, strange shooting pains in his head during the first couple days of the session, causing him to slam his head against the wall and against like the hood of Alex's car. They take him to the hospital a couple times and eventually they determine that it's really just a bad toothache. Right, and they pull that tooth and then they're like all set. But yeah. so his brother's dying, his their drummer can't keep time for shit, 
they've got like a guitarist, but then they're also like adding a guitarist last minute as they're recording the songs. That couldn't have been easy. They also mentioned that Gerard's vocal performances would occasionally uh, break Ray Toro down into tears. Which I love again. Yeah. And that really comes back to the fact that like when they had this song, they would just play it for their friends and high five. They're like, mm-hmm. we did it. We didn't die. We didn't kill each other. This is the best thing ever. One more thing I wanted to say about this song before we get into the next one is that there's a text on the original album disc that came out that reads, unauthorized duplication is a violation of applicable laws and will result in Gerard coming to your house and sucking your blood. This this is an emo band. Like, yeah. for all the people who say it's not because the band said they're not, okay, Gerard's going to come suck your blood, okay? Yeah. This next track is really cool, though, and finally gives us an excuse to talk about the narrative Drowning Lessons. This is a good song. I don't know if it's a great song. This is one of the ones I would cut if this was just an EP. Really? Interesting. Not a, not on my cut list. I think this one's actually kind of underrated. I never skip it, so I can't really say I dislike it. But every time I get to the end of Vampires, I'm like, oh, I got to do Drowning Lessons before I get Sorrows. And then I'm halfway through Drowning Lessons, and I'm like, without a sound. Like, just loving it. It's, it sneaks up on you. Yeah, yeah totally. Definitely. The guitar work is really good. I love that like riff that comes in like... Uh, a minute in and then later on Gerard sings over it. It's really yeah, good. Yeah, really good. But what strikes me about this song as being essential to the record is that this is where they kind of subtly introduce like the demolition lovers concept narrative that runs through this and their next album. Yeah. Which is like a kind of half-baked concept about like a duo of Bonnie and Clyde-esque characters who are like on the run from the law and like killing a bunch of people. And That's interesting. They have some kind of they have like some weird like occult story going on in the second part. Fascinating. I never really got the narrative parts of this song, so I, I have a thing about demolition, which we'll still get to. Yeah, but like uh, apparently in the second half, which takes place in Three Cheers, at the end of this one, both of the demolition lovers die, mm-hmm. and the male member strikes a deal with the devil, where if he kills a thousand evil men, he'll be able to resurrect the woman. Okay. And the lyrics in this song, like, a thousand bodies piled up, I never thought it'd be enough, give us an early glimpse at that story. Oh, yeah. So this is really where it kind of, like, first kind of seeps into the band's material. I wouldn't, like, call this, like, a concept album or, like, a rock opera or anything like that, but it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever watched, like, The X-Files, but they had, like, their Mythos episodes where, like, there'd be, like, five episodes where it would be, like, a monster of the week, but then they would pick back up on a running plot. And that's always how I've seen My Chemical Romance handling concepts for the most part. They got a little tighter with it in their later days. But here it's like, here are a couple unrelated songs, and here's one where there's some continuity going on. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of this as their, like, myth episode of X-Files. That's really on point. I love that. I like that, too, because it kind of makes you pay a little more attention, too. Absolutely. It's a, it's a cool plot, though. It's kind of like Natural Born Killers, the musical or something. I saw it described as. Absolutely. And like I said, I still love this song. I don't really dislike a single song on this record. But it's just when I'm ranking the songs, this one this one tends to be towards the bottom. Well, whether you'd cut this one or not, there's quite a bit of knife play going on in this next song, Our Lady of Sorrows. Okay, I have a strenuous pass with this song because I adored it when I was like 14. And this was like the edgiest song I've ever heard. Okay, totally. And you know, I was thinking about dyeing my hair black and just singing Our Lady of Sorrows in my room. Yeah. 
Yeah. This was one of the first ones they recorded in Otter's Attic. And I think you can I think you can definitely tell that the band was still kind of in the process of finding their voice. Definitely. And I think if this is an EP and you're going to cut three songs, not two, this might be one of them. This might be the third. But it's really come back around for me in terms of, like, I recognize that it's an edgy, like, kids song. But that's what I love about it. That's never been one of my issues with it. I don't know. Like, I feel like it just doesn't have enough of their personality in it, I guess. But I do really like the performances. I think there's a great sense of urgency, especially in that bridge where Gerard is like, take my fucking hand. Yeah. That's really good. And it's the shortest song. It's only two minutes and six seconds. It's the shortest track on the record. I love the lyric, the patron saint of Switchblade fights. That would have totally been my, like username on an mcr message board back in 2004 oh yeah also apparently their second drummer bob Breyer, hated this song interesting and he refused to play it so this song was out of mcr rotation for a while my favorite thing about it though probably is just like the title our lady of sorrows which is another name for the virgin mary uh when describing the sorrows she went through in her life oh, like, interesting there are seven sorrows of mary which are just like events that cost her great amounts of pain like the death of jesus okay and our lady of sorrows is usually depicted as Mary with like seven swords piercing her heart, which is very, very metal. Jesus. Yeah. I always saw Our Lady of Sorrows as the name of the private school that they go to in the I'm Not Okay music video. Great. I love that. Yeah. That's sick. Do you want to talk about the next song? Head First for Halos. This feels like a big one. This is a huge one. This is a top three on the record for me, I think. My top three is still coming up, but there is undoubtedly something very special about this song. Like, for starters, I think it has more of that MCR factor than any other song on this record. Like, I think early on, they're a band whose influences are kind of hard to spot. Like, Gerard even said that in an interview I saw. He said, like, uh, he said, you can't hear any of our influences in our music, though, but it's there. And here's where I really hear some of their influences, particularly, like, uh... I think that opening guitar solo has a lot of like Brian May kind of flair that would really foreshadow some of the Queen influences that they would later work with on like uh, Black Parade. For sure. I totally see that. I also like the the like first line, the part about like, I think I'll blow my brains against the ceiling. Mm-hmm. That really makes me feel like this is Gerard talking about like my head hurts, my heart hurts for what's going on in the world. I'm getting addicted to pills. The red ones make me fly. The blue ones help me fall but we're going to get through it okay. There's an early version of Ben that got Think Happy Thoughts tattooed on his body. Like, right. this is a this is probably my number two on the record. So that's, a, that's a great climax to the song, too, when they're all, like, chanting it and the hand claps come in. Yeah. It's dark subject matter that they're singing about, but here they're really staying, like, chipper in a way that really works well in an ironic sense. This song is the best depiction of Gerard's quirky personality, I think, on the album. Like, it sounds like it was a song written by your coworker at Hot Topic who's always playing pranks on you. Definitely. It's, it's we're sad and depressed, but in a happy way. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's joke about it, kind of. Exactly. And like I said, this was, one of the first, uh, this was one of the first songs from this album I heard. They put a recording of it at Starland Ballroom on Life on the Murder Scene. And Starland Ballroom is actually where I would later, like many years later, see Gerard perform solo on his Hesitant Alien tour. Oh, yeah. Very exciting. Definitely something we're going to have to get into eventually when we run out of proper MCR albums. Totally. I'm looking forward to that episode, too, because I like that album. I 
secretly love that album, secretly because all my other friends who like MCR hate that album. They're very wrong. I Yeah, let's get into it later. So something that I like found while looking at like the genius pages for these songs is something I guess Gerard did like back in 2013. He tweeted his way through My Chemical Romance's catalog. Interesting. Okay, I missed that. The, whoever was editing those pages didn't have a tweet for every song, but the one for Head First for Halos I thought was great. He just says, ah, Head First for Halos. The song that changed everything opened a lot of creative doors for us. Wanted it to sound like thrash Beatles. Okay. I think that's pretty great. I do too. And I think I can see it. Yeah, a little bit. I like that wouldn't be the first thing that came to mind, but sure. I could play along. Yeah, with that. definitely. Yeah. Okay. This is also the part in my narrative where they are getting back together and it's still kind of toxic, but they're agreeing to run away together and they're going to, run away right before school starts, and they're going to get in their car and drive to New York. Nice. New York. The big city. Yeah. And then let's talk about the next song. Sure, because this is kind of about New York, right? Skylines and Turnstiles. This is the very first MCR song ever written. He wrote it while locked up, and it's really what inspired him to make My Chemical Romance, and it's very important. This was that first song he wrote after deciding that art is bullshit and I just got to get out of my basement. But for some reason, this song has never really clicked with me that much. Okay. But then I revisited it in preparation for this recording, and now it's like probably my second favorite song on the record. I actually expected you to say it was your favorite on the album. I don't know why. I'm a big 9-11 guy. Sure, yeah. 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 And this is the 9-11 song, but it's really good. Oddly enough, I don't think it has a lot of that My Chemical Romance factor, where like this feels like it could be by like another post-hardcore band, but it's just a really good song. Yeah, and it captures that, like, for a song about a horrible terror attack and what it must have been like the most traumatic event in his life, mm-hmm. it's surprisingly happy and hopeful. Yeah, it is very hopeful. There's like a lot of talk about like, if the world needs something better now, let's give it to him and stuff like that. This really is like the mission statement for the early days of the band. Definitely. I think anyone who says like, this band's an emo band and they also promote like self-harm and destructive behavior, that's all nonsense. And all you have to do is look at the lyrics of this. The first line of this song is, you're not in this alone. Yeah. And if the world needs something better, let's give them one more reason mm-hmm. now. The big thing when Black Parade blew up was like, my chemical garment saved my life. That's what all like the teenagers were saying and stuff. Yeah, I saw an interview with him from the Black Parade era where he's where someone's like, what do pe- fans say to you? Is they just walk up to me and they say, thank you. And I look at them and then I say, thank you. And that's it. That's great. There's some gorgeous imagery in this song. Um, steel corpses stretched out towards an ending sun. Scorched in black, it reaches in and tears your flesh apart as ice-cold hands rip into your heart. Just really good. And I think a lot of the imagery and a lot of the sentiment that he works with on this song would be right at home on Danger Days, interestingly. Yeah, I definitely get what you mean. Like, it's got that kind of, like, destroyed city, like, wasteland, post-apocalyptic thing. And it's got that kind of, like, sincerity, too, 
that they would put into songs like uh, Sing. Sure, 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 sure. When you you saw them live, I right? did, you, yeah. You saw them live? I saw them. And you saw them like when they were the Killjoys. They were so. definitely the Killjoys. Gerard had the red hair. Mikey had the bleached hair. Were they still including any Bullets material in their sets at that point? Do you remember? They played Sorrows for sure. Huh. Because I remember knowing that Bob Breyer hated that song and wondering if, he was gonna, if they were going to play it because he was already out of the band at this point. Um, I'm not really sure... What else they played? They might have played this song, though, now that I'm, like, thinking back. Sorrows is a pretty good Killjoy song, I think. Yeah. Because I can totally picture all those characters having, like, knife fights. Yeah. But this, I would love to hear this kind of just reimagined in that, like, dance-punky Killjoy style that they used for Danger Days. That would be so interesting. That would have been really sick. I I don't know if they did or not. I can't remember, unfortunately. This one's a winner, though. I like this track a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, those lyrics about butane on his skin and just uh, really good. Yeah, just a gorgeous song. Honestly, though, this next song, Early Sunsets Over Monroeville, is my favorite song on the record. Really fascinating. Yes. I have a story to tell about this song. Let me hear it. Um, I was once a young boy, and I liked a girl. And this girl liked a book called Twilight. Okay. And I had this album around the same time as I thought if I read Twilight, I could woo this girl. Mm -hmm. So I just remember listening. This was my favorite song on the album at the time. So I'd listen to Monroeville over and over and over again while I sort of forced myself to pretend to like Twilight. Uh Uh-huh. So this song has like a very special place in my heart. And for a while, I associated it too much with Twilight and couldn't listen to it because all I just saw was the like angsty, like YA bullshit. There could totally be an alternate cut of the first Twilight movie where Edward and Bella dance to this song at their prom instead of that Iron and Wine song. Exactly. But I have since like gotten over that and I love it again. I'm surprised it's your favorite song on the record, though. That's exciting. I'm a big sucker for, like, waltzy prom songs like this, honestly. Like, and just what Gerard does, like, in terms of writing here is so good because it's basically a very long extended metaphor that compares having to end a relationship that isn't really alive anymore right. with killing, like, a loved one that is has been bitten by a zombie and is turning before your eyes. Right, which plays into back into my indie movie. Yeah, when you when you brought up that thing about changing into a vampire, I was like, oh, I can't wait to tell him what I think about Monroeville. Exactly. So he's dying, turning into a vampire very slowly. He's starting to get this bloodlust. He's like, baby, I love you. I know I was an asshole before, but please, I need you. Yeah. And they decide not to go to New York. They turn around and they go to the suburbs, this little town called mm-hmm. Monroeville. In my movie, it's a fictional suburb. There are, in fact, three real Monroevilles, one in California, one in Alabama, and one in Pennsylvania. And one is used in uh, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, right? Oh, I don't know. I've never actually seen Dawn of the Dead. I I think that's what the town is, um, but this song contains a lot of references to George Romero's classic zombie film, Dawn of the Dead, which is about a group of people taking refuge in a big abandoned shopping mall to hide from the zombie apocalypse going on outside. Okay. So there's a lot of, like... Gerard uses a lot of, like, empty mall imagery. Yeah. Talking about, like, up and down escalators and stuff like that. And a lot of zombie metaphors. Yeah. In my movie, this is her realizing her undead boyfriend does kind of just want to eat her. Interesting. And he's no longer able to be saved. And he's kind of begging her to kill him now because he knows he's just going to hurt her. Dark. And she realizes she has to kill him. The best part of this song, I think, is maybe the, like, 
two minute long build up at the end that just turns into an incredibly dark depiction, like in real time, of that moment where the gun is in your hand and the person you know is really starting to change, mm-hmm. and you have to make that choice. And just like just like committing to ending a relationship with someone who is important to you, it can feel impossible. I have the lyrics here. Before I pull this trigger, your eyes vacant and stained. And if I had the guts to put this to your head, and would anything matter if you're already dead? And then there's that final cry he lets out. There's a corpse in this bed. Love that. Uh-huh. Love that. Love it. But really into this whole song. Something I wanted to ask you is, I, I've always imagined like it, it would be really easy for me to kill a loved one if they turned into a zombie, because like they're gone. That's not the person <laughs> anymore, right? Sure, like, I, sure. It looks like them, but they're really gone. I could do it. I wish I could say that, but I couldn't. You think it'd be tough for you? I think it would be. I'm very sentimental. I'm a big softie. I am a softie too, deep down. But I mean, like, I feel like I would get it. Yeah, I think I would get there. As terrible as this is going to sound, if there were two of us and the other person was freaking out more, I could do it better. It would be easier for me to just, like, buck up and be like, yeah, I'll do it. Just, like, let me take the lead. But if it was by myself, I would find it really hard. And if there was someone else, like, mm-hmm. tougher who would do it for me, I would rather that. Well, I think the way Gerard makes me reconsider how easy I've always thought that would be really speaks to the power of this song. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. And that's sort of the emotional climax of my story. But there's a, there's a denouement or a denouement, if you will. Sure. Uh, let's, let's, get, let's keep moving, though, because next we've got a, This Is The Best Day Ever. Yeah, this is the second song I would cut from this record. This is the one that I would absolutely cut. I think this one can go. It's on the Attic demos, so it feels like they were just like, whatever, it's on the demos. We only have nine songs without it because romance doesn't count. I think having just nine proper songs is fine for a debut. I mean, with romance, that keeps things to a nice even ten. I think you could have lost this one. And like, if you take if you take this out, you get a second half of the record that is Headfirst for Halos, Skylines and Turnstiles, Early Sunsets, Cubicles, and Demolition Lovers. That is a very tight and consistent side, too. That's one track after the other. Definitely. I don't hate it. It's just not memorable. Exactly. It's, it's, it's fun, but there's, yeah, there's nothing really going on here that catches my attention. Every time I get to this song, I'm like, how does this song go again? And then I, like, once it starts, I'm like, okay, I know how it goes, but yeah. do I? I kind of like the hospital imagery in Gerard's lyrics, but that's about all that's, this one's really doing for me. Yeah. If they'd come up, if Gerard had written, like, Thank You for the Venom a couple months early, or even, like, Bear Me in Black, which is a B-side from the Three Cheers era, either of those songs would slot in here on this album, like, really, really well. Totally. But again, I don't even think this album needs anything else. No, you're definitely not wrong. I like this next song quite a bit, actually, though. Cubicles. This one's pretty cool. Secretly, my number one on the album. Nice. I like that. Yeah. I just fucking Great. love this song. It's the angsty teen version of Jim and Pam from The Office. A little bit. I um, I found a review of, uh, of the album from when it first came out by a site called Pop Matters that called this one Dilbert Goes Goth. Okay. I can see that. A fuzzy ode to a doomed office romance. This is, I just came up with this the other day, the end of my indie movie 
is a David Lynchian third act where you're not sure if she killed her vampire boyfriend or not. And she wakes up and she's a different person and she has to go to work at her boring office job. And the whole like cast of the movie, like her high school friends and everything, work in this office. And there's just this confusing like final act of the movie where she's working in an office and she keeps... Love it. The rep- it's like her boyfriend just quit there for some reason that's never addressed. And it's the new guy's first day in the cubicle. And so she kind of like has to hate the fact that this stranger is in her like lover's chair. That's the end of my indie movie. That's great. I think that's a really interesting way to end that. And that's also, I think, for me, I didn't realize that thing about Drowning Lessons earlier. For me, that's kind of the end of the narrative on this album, too. Yeah, but before we get to the end of uh, the narrative and the album with the last track coming next, I just want to talk a little more about this one because I'm I'm a big fan of it, too. Yeah, definitely. It's one of the first they recorded in Otter's Basement. And like some of those early tracks, I feel like this one isn't as My Chemical romance as perhaps it could be. But I just, I love thinking about this as, like, the angstiest song about having an internship at Cartoon Network ever. Yeah, definitely. Because there's a pretty good chance that was what Gerard was doing while he wrote this song, right? Yeah, I could definitely see that for sure. I love this song. I, I think it's... Its weakest part is definitely that it doesn't sound as much like a My Chem song as other songs on this record do. I think you're right about that, but... But who cares when it's a good song? Exactly. When I was, like, depressed a little bit, you know, missing home when I first went to college, and, you know, I was having a good time, but also, like, I was kind of feeling very nostalgic about my life back here in California. Sure. Because I went to school back east. I listened to this song, like, on repeat. It just helped me get through a tough time, and for that, it gets awarded the top prize on this album for me there's just something so poetic about the mundanity that gerard is like writing about and of course as someone who like works in an office myself and has also like dyed my hair black a few times in the past couple months i'm sure i'm really fascinated by like the office goth as a character yeah absolutely it's interesting to think of gerard way as somebody who worked in an office and also had this like cool artsy goth band at the same time yeah definitely really into it love this song I love the imagery in it. I didn't actually pull any quotes for it, but I think if you don't know the song lyrics off the top of your head, everyone listening should just go listen to it as soon as we're done with this podcast. One I really like is, I'm only two cubes down. I'll photocopy all the things that we could be. Yeah, really good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Let's talk about the album closer, though. Demolition Lovers. Yeah, the longest My Chemical Romance song. I didn't realize. That's pretty cool, though. This one's like, what, six minutes? Six minutes and seven seconds. The second longest also on this record is Vampires, and they wouldn't come anywhere near as long again until the kids from yesterday at five minutes, 25 seconds. Vampires is a marathon, too. Yeah. There are no songs longer than four minutes on their next record. Also, fun fact. This is a great climax to the whole experience, though. This works so well as an album closer. It's it's actually my third favorite song on the record. I just this is a great track. I think I totally agree. You know how in some times when you get to the end of a of like a novel mm-hmm. and the author is like, "Hey, this is uh, something else I'm working on." I've always seen this as like, "Hey, bullets is over now. We finished that, but here is the like." prelude to our next album and it works really well i think to end 
the album almost kind of on a cliffhanger with a hook to get you in next time too. Yeah, that's that's how I see this. It's like a DVD bonus feature of like a short film that turns into a full narrative in the next album. Right, and and this is the end of that first part of the narrative uh, that runs through those two albums, where our Bonnie and Clyde couple get gunned down in the desert. This is not in my top three. It's very close. This is another song, though, that I always used to kind of skip. I would end at Cubicles as a kid because I was just, I guess I wasn't into the slow jams other than Monroeville. I could see that. And Cubicles works fine enough as a closer, too, I think. Yeah, definitely agree with that. But now I can't even imagine skipping it. I would listen to it on its own. I just, I love this song. Yeah, I I really like that it's kind of divided in two parts, too. It's got that really, the first part kind of really kicks the door down and then they pull back for the second part where Gerard starts going into that all we are is bullets refrain. Yeah. And it really builds in a way that is like genuinely chilling, I think. Sonically, it's there. Lyrically, it's very poetic. It fits. I like that it bridges the two albums too, because I think it does fit in both places. And they kind of revisit the whole going out in a hell of bullets scene on the last track on their next album too, but we'll, yeah. we'll get to that. We'll get to that. That's episode two. As for episode one, that was bullets. We made it through the whole thing. Cool. I want to ask you one last thing, which is, where does this rank for you now? And do you think it could potentially change as we continue to do these deep dives? That's a really good question, because I find whenever I kind of step away from My Chemical Romance for a while and then come back to them, the position of where their albums sit in my personal rankings kind of shift around. Sure. For example, I liked this album a lot more than I've liked it in the past. And like tracks that I've never really appreciated really stuck out to me. And I can see myself possibly ranking it higher in the list than I would have in the past. Agreed. This was always kind of my least favorite, even though it was the first one I owned. I can imagine this one being like the majority of My Chemical Romance fans' least favorite album, except for those ones who were like, who were probably like, oh yeah, I think they kind of sold out in the later days. Sure, but... I literally rolled my eyes when you said that. And honestly, this album deserves more love than it gets. I think this is a really great effort. It's a super solid debut. They really, I think they knew what they were doing. And they really came out the gate with a good one. Controversy time. I might put this as my number two. Nice, cool. I'm looking forward to seeing how both of our lists end up. Yeah, definitely. And I've spent a lot of time with this record recently. I've been, I've, had it a daily listen on my rotation, like pretty much the whole album for the better part of a month now, maybe even six weeks. So I got to say what surprised me the most about preparing for this episode was how re-listenable this album was. Definitely. I mean, I found it like I would listen to it as like, okay, I want to make sure I'm like listening to it to be prepared for this episode. But then like later in the day, I'd be like, okay, but like, let's listen to uh, vampires one more time. Totally. I was the same way. I was like, not sound like I wasn't excited for this, but I was almost kind of like, I never found myself super psyched to sit down with this album or record the first episode of this show. Cause I was like, Oh, it's gotta be about bullets. And that one's kind of dark and edgy and like, it's not going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. But no, it's a really fun album and it's surprisingly light, not like color or shade wise but like in terms of digestibility definitely it's only 40 minutes it's only 10 tracks if you don't count romance which is short anyway it's just really really good really tight just i i have a love for this and anyone listening hopefully there's more than like two or three of you if you haven't listened to this album in a while and you never ranked it that high up on your list give it another listen just go in with fresh eyes because it's a keeper fresh eyes clear heart can't lose yeah agreed all right, so do you want to wrap this first episode up? I think this was a success. Sure, I totally agree. I can't wait to do more songs or more uh, track-by-tracks 
in the future. Yeah, our next episode is going to be really exciting because we're going to be talking about Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge. Which I think is a lot of people's favorite. Absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of people who will tell you that that is the definitive My Chemical Romance work, and I'm excited to talk about it and see if we feel the same way. Until then, though, if you listen to this podcast and you like what you heard, feel free to review or subscribe to us on iTunes, write to us at notokpodcast at gmail.com, or follow us on Twitter at notokpodcast. That's all we've got time for today, though. So, Ben, why don't you take us out? Uh, Until next time, I'm Ben Pitt. And I'm Trevor Ickrath. And uh, we are still not okay. Think happy thoughts. Thank you.